Uh, people of God, we have been uh, this fall going through a series on what it means to be the church. And to explore what it means to be the church, we have been looking at the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And as our companion through this journey of what it means to be God's people formed and shaped by these covenant signs, we have been walking through the Heidelberg Catechism as our guide. And so today, uh, for our catechism reading, we are going to be looking at the Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day 27, Lord's Day 27. And so I'll read the question, and if you could respond with the answer, it's on the screens. Does this outward washing of baptism with water itself wash away sins? No, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words. To begin with, God wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more important, God wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. Should infants also be baptized? Yes. Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people, and they, no less than adults, our promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who produces faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Thus far, the reading from the Heidelberg Catechism. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts in the New Testament, the book of Acts chapter 2, story of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be starting at verse 14, at Peter's sermon before the crowd in Jerusalem after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 14, and we'll be reading, the bulletin says we'll be reading through verse 47, but I'm actually just going to stop at verse 41, uh, which is kind of the end of the, uh, the story about uh, Peter's sermon and the crowd's response. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 14. And as we approach God's word, let's come before him in a prayer for illumination. O Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that in these words you reveal yourself to us as a God who makes and keeps his promises. We thank you that these words point us to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who takes away our sins by his blood and gives us the gift of faith by his spirit. We thank you that these truths, these promises that you make to us are confirmed in the sacraments with which you have blessed your church. And we pray now that as we read these holy words inspired by your spirit, that you would send that same spirit to us to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our minds, and to open our hearts to everything that it is that you would have us see and hear and know and believe. Transform us more and more, we pray, into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Acts 2, starting at verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence." Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses to this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. 
God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and believe, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. I said believe instead of baptized. I'm preaching about baptism. He says baptized. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, in many ways, the celebration of Pentecost is a celebration of the birth of the Christian church. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of Christ descends upon the apostles who begin to speak in tongues to the crowds gathered in Jerusalem for the, for the Feast of Weeks, the festival of the wheat harvest. A great wind blows through the assembled followers of Jesus and tongues of fire rest upon them and they begin to speak in all the languages of the known world and people who hear them are amazed. People from all over the Roman Empire and beyond hear the gospel proclaimed in their own language. And Peter, one of the pillars of the early community, the early Christian community, the, the first of the disciples, stands up and delivers his first sermon. A sermon that mines the riches of the Hebrew scriptures, drawing from the, the, the prophet Joel, from the covenant promises of God to King David, the great king of Israel, and from the Psalms of David, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Peter uses these various passages from scripture to demonstrate his one central claim. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, before we dive into the text of Peter's sermon and the focus of our, our sermon today, I want to reflect a little bit on the setting of Peter's sermon. Because Peter's sermon, even though it's short and to the point, addresses the context into which he is speaking in a really appropriate way. And the context here is Pentecost, the, the Feast of Weeks, the Jewish festival of Shavuot. The Shavuot is originally a harvest festival described in the Old Testament, uh, celebrated in the late spring after the first harvest of wheat, um, the, the, the wheat, the wheat harvest. But throughout the history of the Jewish religion, the, the Feast of Weeks, the festival of Shavuot, came to represent much more than that. Fifty days after Passover, 
when the Israelites were redeemed from slavery in Egypt with signs and wonders, after God had delivered them across the Red Sea with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, according to Jewish tradition, 50 days after this great event of the Passover, the people of Israel arrived at Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. And so the the festival of Pentecost, the Feast of Shavuot, became a celebration of Torah, a celebration of God's giving of his law. But Shavuot is not only a, a harvest festival or a celebration of Torah, it also came in ancient Israel, the, the festival of Shavuot came to be a memorial of the death of King David, the greatest king ever to rule in Israel. And so on Shavuot, the people of Israel remember also God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, where God, through the prophet Nathan, promises David, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. On Shavuot, the people of Israel commemorate the death of this great king of Israel. They remember David's example, his dedication to the law, to Torah, the law of God. They remember his reign and his special relationship with God sealed in God's covenant promise to him of an eternal throne. On Shavuot, the people of Israel remember the death of their greatest king. The Feast of Weeks was not originally intended to be a memorial celebration, a memorial remembrance. It was originally intended simply to be a harvest festival, kind of like our Thanksgiving a celebration of the bountiful harvest and of God's providence to his people. But isn't this often the case? That when we come together as families to celebrate our great cultural holidays, especially our holidays commemorating God's providence, commemorating Thanksgiving, we have a way of turning things into a type of memorial for those who are no longer with us. My own grandfather, Grandpa Barron's, on my mom's side, died on Thanksgiving Day uh, almost 20 years ago, American Thanksgiving. And to this day, whenever my family gathers together to celebrate Thanksgiving, we do our regular Thanksgiving things. We go around the table and we say what we're thankful for over the past year, and we eat turkey and we drink wine and we watch football. But after the meal, after the game, after our tryptophan-induced catnaps on the couch, We sit around and we tell stories of Grandpa, Grandpa Ed. We tell stories of Grandpa, remembering his life, mourning his death, filling the void left by his absence with our memories, with our stories. Peter's sermon on Pentecost morning taps into this sentiment. On a day when all of Israel is remembering the life and death 
of their greatest king. Peter speaks of God's faithfulness to King David, of God's covenant with David. God made a promise to David, Peter says, that God would raise up a king from David's line who would rule over his people forever. And even though David was dead and buried, God gave him the gift of prophecy to see what was to come. God had promised David on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. And so, seeing what was to come, David spoke in his psalms of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor would his Holy One see decay, that the path of life would be opened and all people would be filled with joy in the presence of God. David had hope, Peter says, because of God's faithfulness to his promises. And today, he tells God's people, on this day, when you remember the death of your great king David, God's promise to David has been confirmed. Because Jesus, the Messiah, God's chosen one, born of David's line, has defeated death and been raised to life. And by his victory, we also stand firm in the sure hope of God's promises, washed by his blood and by his spirit. By his victory, we stand in the sure hope of the resurrection. By the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been born again to newness of life. The people are amazed by these words. They are cut to the heart, and they ask Peter and the disciples gathered with him, what shall we do? And Peter answers, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children And for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. In these words, we might call it the application part of Peter's sermon. The apostle does something truly amazing. In these closing words, Peter extends God's covenant promise to David to us all, even to our children, through the sacrament of baptism. In these words, Peter tells us that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are born again, born out of darkness and into light, born out of sin and into righteousness, born out of bondage and into freedom, born out of the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of God, out of death, into life, and life abundant. In these words, Peter tells us that by this gracious inclusion in the promises of God, the covenant promises of God, we are born again into a new story, the story of God and his people. 
We are born again into the story of a faithful God who has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, whose power has defeated death and opened to us the paths of life. And baptism, this holy sacrament of belonging, is the door through which we pass into that new story. These waters with which we are washed are a sign and seal to us. As surely as the water washes away the dirt from our body, so surely are we washed with the blood and spirit of our Lord, whose blood washes away our sins and whose spirit gives us the gift of faith. We pass through these waters as Israel passed through the Red Sea, delivered from bondage in Egypt to receive the promises of God. And as the apostle proclaims, these promises are for us and for our children and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. With Peter's call to repent and be baptized, we might be surprised at his inclusion of children in this call. To many people, it seems clear that children do not have what it takes to repent and believe, that they are too simple-minded, that their conscience and intellect have simply not developed to a point where they can respond in glad hope to the promises of God. But Scripture gives us good reasons to affirm Peter's proclamation here, to affirm this inclusion of children in the covenant. Aside from Christ's own words inviting children to himself and holding them up not just as a possibility for faith but as a model for faith, the Catechism gives us four reasons why the children of believers ought to receive the sacrament of baptism. First, the Catechism tells us that it's clear that children are included in God's covenant people. Throughout the scriptures, God's promises are promises to a people, to a community. We are, each and every one of us, called to respond in faith to God's promises as individuals. But such a response is not a once-in-a-lifetime commitment, as though, like, once we make profession of faith, that settles the matter and we're done growing spiritually. We are called every day of our lives to respond in glad hope to God's promises. And we respond to that hope in the context of God's people, in the context of God's called, chosen, and set-apart people. And that response looks different at different ages. uh, Zacharias or Sinus, one of the main authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, writes uh, this in his commentary on the Catechism. Ursinus writes, All those are to be baptized according to the command of Christ who are regarded as members of the visible church, whether they be adults professing repentance and faith or infants born in the church. For all the children of those who believe are included in God's covenant unless they exclude themselves. Even children, therefore, are disciples of Christ, rightly called disciples of Christ, because they are born into the school of Christ, the community of his followers, 
And therefore, the Holy Spirit teaches them in a manner appropriate to their capacity and age. Already in the 16th century, we have echoes of this language of age and ability appropriate expressions of faith. Ursinus even extends the promise of faith to newborn infants. He says, the Holy Spirit is effective even in infants, moving them to believe in God, even though they do not yet believe in the same way that adults do. The truth of the matter, as the Catechism makes clear, is that our children are part of the church. They are part of God's people. And from the very beginning of their lives are raised to respond to God's promises in hope and in faith. So first, children are part of God's people. Second, it's clear that God God extends his promise to forgive our sins and give us faith to our children. God's promises to his people are as true for children as they are for adults. To our children, God promises forgiveness of sins and the gift of faith. And by the power of the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit, God works in them to cleanse them of sin and prompt faith in them. Our children are included in God's covenant, marked as God's people, and offered the promises of the gospel. The Catechism goes on from here to make an interesting third point, and that is that the sacraments are for the whole church. We do not have in the Christian faith a two-tier system of membership. We are either claimed by God for his kingdom and a part of his church, or we are not. And our children, by God's grace, are included in that covenant and have visible membership in the assembly of God's people. In the ancient world, this is kind of neat, in the ancient world, this was kind of a scandal because in ancient Rome, membership in a religious organization was considered to be a great honor and privilege, something that you had to work hard for and study and and learn all the rules and, and, and then you had this big rite of initiation where you were allowed in to this religious community. And so this was a downright scandal in in the ancient world that Christians offered membership to children, even to infants. And different Roman writers used this fact to argue the inferiority of Christianity as a religion. Because what kind of religion offers the same religious benefits to children as it does to adults? To people who have gone through the hard work of learning the religious tenets and the theological system and the rules of behavior... But in the, early, in the early church, this is exactly what Christians practiced. The children of believers are part of the church of God. God's promises are true for them as well as for us. And therefore, they receive the sign and seals of God's grace. And finally, the catechism points to the parallel that the Apostle Paul makes between baptism and the Old Testament sign of circumcision. Just as infants were given the mark of the covenant in the Old Testament, so too in the New Testament people of God, children are marked as heirs of the covenant promises. People of God, the truth of the matter is that baptism is about God's promises to his people. Baptism is about God's promises to us. God's grace extended to us 
God's promises, God's covenant offered to us. Baptism is a sign and seal of God's grace. By the waters of baptism, we are assured that God includes us in his covenant before we do anything to deserve it. And our whole lives of faith, then, are a response to the good news of Christ's victory over death and sin. In baptism, whether we come as infants or as adults, we come to these waters as children in the presence of our Heavenly Father to receive His grace and to be born again into newness of life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Lord our God, we thank you that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still infants in the faith, not knowing right from wrong, not understanding the promises of the gospel. You extended your grace to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, and to give us new life in the kingdom of God. We thank you, O Lord for this indescribable grace that grabs us and shapes us and fills us and moves us to respond with faith and glad hope in your promises. We thank you that you have made us a part of your people, that you call us your children, that you adopt us into your family and bless us by your grace. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would transform us more and more by your grace, that our lives may reflect the life of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.